Welcome to The Sober Unicorn. We are a gay-hosted, all-inclusive podcast about sobriety and addiction recovery for the LGBT plus community and all of our allies. I'm your host, Holden, and thank you for joining us today. All right, well, hello, hello, everybody. It's Holden back here again with The Sober Unicorn. I hope everybody's doing absolutely incredible. Of course, if you're not, you can always reach out to me or any of the guests here on the platform that have shared their social medias. I bet any of us would be happy to talk to you about whatever you're going through. Today, we have a guest that reached out to us via email. Um, he wanted to come on and share his story and some, some stuff that he works with. He works closely with the um, LGBTQ community um, and recovery and stuff like that. So everybody, welcome Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, Holden. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good, good. So, I mean, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, like who you are, and give everybody a little bit about like your recovery journey. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, one of the the reasons I think I even put this in my email when I reached out to you is I love the title, The Sober Unicorn, um, because a little bit about my story is I used to work at a bar. I, I bartended um, for a popular gay bar, um, and I live in California, Los Angeles, so I worked at a popular gay bar in West Hollywood for 11 years, and um, be, when I started working, I, I drank, I used drugs and then about halfway, I worked there for 11 years. And so about maybe, I don't know, four years I got, I, I stopped using drugs and alcohol. And so I was sober while working at this really popular, busy nightclub. And I sometimes guests would come up to me and, you know, want to buy me a drink or like a shot. And when I would say like, oh, I, I don't drink or, you know, I'm sober. Um, one, I, I'll never forget one of the, one of the people, one of the guests, um, the customers, when I said that he's like, you're sober, finding a, a sober person at a gay bar is like finding a unicorn. Mm -hmm. And I, that always just struck me. And so when I saw your, your, the name of your podcast, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to, I want to, I want to talk to him. <laughs> so. And it's, I mean, it's great having people reach out to me that want a guest on that have like just found me um, organically. Mm. And they're like, okay, now I want to hop on too. So the thing is you work closely with the LGBT I community. I do. Yeah. So I specialize. Mean, yeah. Yeah. I specialize in working with, with, um, I'm an LGBTQ affirming therapist. Um, that's what I, I went to school for and it's a specialization and I, I primarily specialize in working with gay men specifically. And that's one of also the reasons I wanted to short, share my story and just talk to, to folks who listen to your podcast or who might, um, come across is just, uh, around sobriety and recovery. Um, and, and I, I work with a lot of gay men specifically, and they're sort of themes that I find in the work that I do. Um, and a lot of the clients that I work with are interested in sobriety, or maybe they're struggling with getting sober. Um, and so whether it's, it's alcohol, whether it's substance like uh, drugs, crystal meth is a big one that, mm -hmm. that I work with a lot of clients around. Um, and I think too, you know, because and I have a lot to say about this subject because I feel like one of the big things that I find with my clients is they suffer with shame and silence because there's this sort of, because of all the work that we want to do publicly is around advocacy and equality and having the same rights, which is very important. A lot of us don't want to talk about our struggles. And mm -hmm. so we kind of want to subconsciously project out to the world, accept us, see us, hear our stories, 
And at the same time, a lot of us are still struggling with shame around our identities, around sexuality. A lot of my clients, gay men who, whether they're in their 20s, 30s, my old, oldest client is 71 years old. They, they, they've not ever really fully experienced sober sex. They've, yeah. not, they've not been entirely sober and also had sex. And so I think it's a really important conversation to allow folks to have publicly. I know sober sex, it took me a minute. Like once I got clean, because um, a lot of my drug abuse was around chem sex, which yeah. um, meth sex and everything. So it took a long time to mm. like feel comfortable with myself sexually again, because of course, when you're on meth, you are willing to put yourself out there entirely. Yeah. Rejection doesn't matter anymore. Right. You're like, oh, if he rejects me, the next five won't. Um, but now when you're sober-minded, rejection hits you a little differently. Mm. And um, you kind of aren't willing to put, like I wasn't willing to put myself out there like that yeah. uh, for a long time. And just recently have I met somebody that is aware of my past, that accepts it, that sexually is open and... We've been able to like navigate that, navigate mm. sober sex. And finally, I've been able to start enjoying sex again with um with other people and um in, in the sober world. So when you got your like degree, did you were you able to accomplish that because you were sober, or were you working on that pre-sobriety? Yeah, no, I, I've been sober now for eight years. Um, my you know, for me working at a bar, and this is one of the things I, I love talking about too, is, is really helping people understand their substance use. Like that's like the first sort of step that I often with even working with my clients or friends who call me, um, you know, who are maybe sober curious and are interested is really helping them understand. And so for me, you know, I worked at a bar, I, I, I came out of the closet, I, I, I sort of always equated, in my experience, I kind of equated partying and drugs and drinking um, with a lot of my friends coming out, um, going to the club, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's where we socialized. And, and so they kind of went hand in hand. And, and then when I started working at a gay bar, I realized like, oh, this is kind of just what we do um, and 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 I I sort of thought that I'm more personable when I'm drunk or I'm more personable when I'm using drugs, you know, cocaine, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And so I'm more, you know, do, you know, I, I'm like more fun. And that was the story that I told myself. And so for me, it was understanding my use, understanding mm -hmm. alcohol, understanding cocaine for myself. And, um, I remember when I first got sober, I didn't want to tell anyone, uh, because I, I didn't want them to judge me. I didn't want them to like make fun of me really, to be honest. And, and so I chose to sort of like, as an experiment, just to do it on my own mm -hmm. because I wanted to understand, like, is that really true? Like, am I, am I really not fun? Like without dr being drunk or, you know, being on drugs and, and so once I was able to understand why I was using and what my relationship was with the substances, it was like a friend. It was like a trusted like friend that I had. Um, but then when I started to see like, oh, well, this friend actually is affecting my other relationships. You know, it's maybe, maybe it's not that good of a friend. <laughs> um, and so then when I sort of understood that and the story I was telling myself, which is that 
you know, I'm, I'm more fun. I'm more personable. I'm going to get better tips. Um, and, and so when I stopped and I realized like, I'm still fun, I'm still personable. I got the same amount of tips. I realized that that story wasn't true. There were a lot of holes in that story. And mm -hmm. so for me, um, it just completely changed my life. And I found, you know, so much like on the other side of using drugs, I mean, so much time and energy was put into, you know, drugs and alcohol, like being hung over was the absolute worst. Um, I mean, that's really like to, to know that I don't ever have to be hung over again is like one of the biggest gifts. Mm -hmm. And I know, I mean, come for me, my, my main DSU is math. So once you're doing that and you come down, you have days uh, of recuperation. It's you're, horrible. You're losing days of time that could be better spent doing other things. So you talked about shame, shame yes. from within ourselves. So do you find that with your clients or yourself that the shame is because of their parents or mm. the straight society? Or do you think the shame is about themselves brought on by the own, their own community? Mm, that's a really good question. I think, I think it, every each person's you know I, I look at each person kind of as a unique experience and also there are sort of patterns or similar experiences and so it's kind of both and um i think that a lot of my clients that i work with again going back to 20s 30s 40s my oldest client is 71 there they share similar experiences you know from their childhood um about what it meant to be gay. You know, a lot of them have the same sort of religious trauma experiences or the, you know, the, the, the shameful message messages that they heard about themselves. You know, one of my clients I'll never forget, you know, I think it's one of these things that I feel, I feel honored to be able to do this work. Cause I feel like I'm being, I'm bearing witness to someone's like story, their life, um, their experience. And one of my clients shared that, you know, there was never room for him to be gay when he was younger. And I think about that from like a, from a psychological perspective, like our psyches, like I, I knew that I was gay when I was six. A lot of my clients share a similar, you know, age range, you know, like maybe six, seven, you know, years old. Um, and when I share that with, with people, like when I'm talking or giving a talk or something, and they'll say, look, well, how did you know you were gay? And the thing of it is, is like we put our adult constructs of gender and sexuality onto, you know, we, we like when I say that we're putting our adult constructs of what we know as an adult about sexuality at, at six years old. I didn't know what being gay meant. I couldn't tell you what I do, what I know now as an adult. But what I did know as a child is that there was something about me that I was starting to tune into. I was starting to notice differences. I was starting to maybe feel crushes and feel my you know feelings and i noticed that i was there was a difference in me around from what a, a lot of the messages that i sort of heard or saw um, with with friends and it's the same thing with my clients and so thinking about it going back to my client who shared there was never room for him to be gay from a psyche from a psyche's perspective there's never there's not space there's never room for him to be gay that does something to the psyche Mm -hmm. that and, and then and and then he he grew up sort of internalizing these messages that he can't be himself he can't show who he is and so when he's developing like we all do you know 
maybe having an erection, maybe feeling, going through hormones, like all of those things that we, that we experience, that all had to be done in private. That all had to be done in secret. So what he started to do is go to parks and, um, you know, hook up with strangers and as a teenager. Um, and so that takes a toll. And so going back to your point is where do those messages come from? They, they can, they, they can come from, I call them messages from the playground. Um, mm -hmm. the subconscious beliefs that we all pick up from our childhood. Um, this, the, the playground is the mind our consciousness and the messages are societal's beliefs, society's beliefs. And so going back to your point is that, you know, a lot of us who grew up with shame or experienced shame, no matter if we're out of the closet, we're in a relationship, some of those, they're kind of like splinters. They kind of, some, they, some, some of them are still inside. And so then we come out of the closet and we go to the club or we have friends and we're not aware of our own unconscious feelings about mm -hmm. being gay. And so then we project that onto others. I can see that. I mean, especially going to church. I mean, I, I feel many gay people that I've spoke to have major trauma from mm -hmm. the church mm -hmm. or I know back in my time, um, I was born in the nineties it was Will and Grace was on TV. Mm -hmm. And so you hear just in the background, parents, siblings talking badly about these individuals on TV, which you internalize that. And I mm -hmm. mean, then there's some people that don't fit into the gay norm that right. when they try to even enter that society, yes, then they feel shame about even being gay because they're like, well, I don't fit in that to that stereotype mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the gay people are. So you, you talked about in the email, you compared a church to a gay bar. Yeah. So could you elaborate? Sure. Yeah. You know, one of, that's one of the things that I, I often talk about is like, you know, what, 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 what we, what, what I observed, and again, 11 years working there Sundays in Los Angeles are, they call them Sunday fun day. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. I don't know if other where listeners are li listening in from, but West Hollywood, Sunday fun day, Sunday brunch is like a big day. And what I started to observe after you know 11 years of working on sunday is like what people do at a bar and what people do at church are really the same ultimately the same thing they're seeking a connection with something beyond the realm of this world it's just that one source is sustainable and one isn't meaning that oftentimes drugs alcohol isn't sustainable um, especially with if it's overused and misused and, and so what I started to see is like, you know, what you, when you go to church, they're, they're people, community, you're having a, an experience of connection. Uh, maybe there's music involved, there's inspiration, it's fun. Um, that also happens at a gay bar on Sundays. And, and, and so what I started to see is like a lot of people, in my experience, I also had, I had religious trauma. Um, I mean, I don't think that you can grow up in the United States and not to some degree, even if you go to a, an affirming church now, um, I mean, there are more affirming churches, I mm -hmm. think collectively, like to your point, you know, children are sponges, they absorb everything. And so what are they unconsciously absorbing? And so to sort of contend with those messages that we've absorbed, finding reprieve at a bar on Sunday is 
like no wonder it's fun it is fun sunday fun day i mean i think i i lived in la for a long time well for three years i wouldn't say that's a long time but sundays was crazy i mean even here in uh, wilton manors mm. it's very known within the gay culture and um, it seems that, like, I always joke around how the gay community is sponsored by Absolute Vodka. Yeah. Um, right. It's it's insane on how you can't even enter a gay event, gay party, or gay really anything without alcohol being involved. And at least looking around and seeing coked out people, methed out people. I mean, I understand that happens in straight society, too. But as you said, with shame coming from our sexuality because of childhood trauma, I think it's amplified within oh, our community. 100%. I mean, I many of my friends, we'd go out, i hang out with mostly straight people. Um, and when I was drinking, they would have one or two drinks and here I'm on like my ninth or tenth shot. Mm-hmm. Part of that, yes, of course, is alcoholism. <laughs> but yeah. the other part is, is like gay people are always kind of known to be extra, the life of the party. Um, so it's kind of like this weird expectation of us to, to go above and beyond the, the yeah. norm. Um, so I, I find that, yeah, gay people, when it comes to alcohol or drugs, it's, they always have to take it to that next level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you said a lot of really, really like wonderful things. And what I heard, what I heard too, is you said, you know, gay people like being extra life of the party. Um, I think about that from the perspective, like a defense mechanism. Like if I can be the life of the party, if I can be really fun and funny, then that sort of takes away going back to the the sort of topic of shame is that takes away from my own discomfort of being, of feeling different or feeling shame. So then if I could just put on this sort of like funny, um, you know, one of the things I'll never forget, um, you know, uh, I talk a lot you know, with people around like sarcasm and like how it's kind of, you know, oh, you know, like watching shows, like even you mentioned Will and Grace, there's this sort of sarcastic kind of like snarky humor with a lot of, between a lot of gay mm-hmm. people going to a gay bar is like, there's a lot of sarcasm used. And I'll never forget, I was working with a therapist and he said, he told me one time that um, sarcasm, the word, the root word, I think it's from like, it's a Greek word. It means uh, tearing of skin, like tearing of flesh. Mm. And so it really comes from this like deep place where it's, it's unconsciously like tearing someone down. And I Mm. think about that from the perspective of how, how we use humor oftentimes in the gay community to tear others down. And it's, it's a defense mechanism. Um, not 100% across the board for everyone, but oftentimes I look at it from a defense mechanism. I mean, we gave, I mean, look at RuPaul's Drag Race. You're going to read a bitch. Right. I mean, it's, you're right. jokingly tearing somebody down. Yes, yeah. it's all about laughter and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, if you hear it enough, that does take away a piece of somebody from themselves. Yeah. So if I don't want to feel my own. Mm hmm pain and discomfort unconscious that still exists inside it's too much for me to bear so i'm gonna i'm gonna give that to someone else exactly exactly so you you write a blog so is your blog around sobriety or is it around um your kind of more professional life both both um i write i um i write a blog for psychology today and that's more for that's more like around like 
I mean, like therapy, like people in the mental health world to help them understand their LGBTQ clients. It's called mm -hmm. LGBTQ affirming psychology. Um, and then I also write about, I, I write for, um, I don't write for, but I write, I, I publish a lot of articles on this uh, website called Elephant Journal, which I love so much because it's, it's all about the mindful life. So I talk a lot about sobriety, spirituality, recovery. Um, I don't know if you, when you got sober, if you use the 12 steps, but one of the things I like mm -hmm. a lot about, you know, in the term, like the term recovery is like, what are we recovering? We're recovering ourselves. And so in my own experience, when I got sober, I didn't get sober through the 12 steps, but I did get sober through my own spiritual journey, my own spiritual practice, um, you know, having to resolve my relationship with the higher power. That was so much a part of my own journey of, you know, coming into myself, having to reconcile, like, do I still believe is, is, you know, the God that I understood or grew up with was this sort of persecutory older man on the clouds judging me. And I really had to like, I, I do a lot of work around, you know, what, what is my notion of a higher power? Like, what do I believe about where, like how, where do, where do I locate myself in this bigger picture of, of life? Yeah. I mean, I got clean through the 12 steps. Um, but the thing is I've always stated on the podcast um, that there's multiple avenues to get clean or sober, yeah. whatever term you want to use. For sure. And there's no right or wrong as long as you, you the end goal is the mm -hmm. same. And that's why I bring on guests from all different. I've had Matt Recovery on here, CBT, um, multiple avenues because there's no right or wrong as we're all here for the same goal. And that's why I like the term recovery because yeah. it's recovery to – Try, just recover yourself as recover you said yourself, yeah because it's all about an internal i know like an internal battle i know when i wrote my book that hands down was like the most therapeutic thing i ever went through mm. like mm. for me it was more therapeutic than the 12 steps could ever be yeah. yeah um because things we hold in and traumas that we hold in it was like putting it out there yeah um and writing it down and forgiving people of the past and so on and so forth was super forgiving and yeah so I know you wrote a book. I did. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and just to kind of touch on one, something that you said, and I, I speaking of my book, like one of the chapters of my book, I'm big on words. Um, words are so important and they speak to our unconscious beliefs. Um, and one of the words that, I, that you used, and this speaks to kind of the, I think the 12 step model I hear a lot, or it just even in kind of maybe like um, treatment you know, in general is like you said, you, you got clean through the 12 steps. And even that word clean sort of like sort of implies that you were dirty when using drugs. And I think that it's important to, for me at least, to recognize, especially when it comes to shame, you know, shame is one of those things where like we feel dirty, we feel like worth, like not worthy. And I feel like that's important to, like you're you were you're like clean dirty like just that's i mean you know you know what i'm saying and so i think that that's important to really underscore that you weren't dirty and now you're clean like you're you're holding you're who you are and that you know you were using drugs i imagine if we were you know through your own journey is like mm -hmm. you were using for a reason like you talked about kim sex like a lot of my clients gay male clients like 
they didn't they didn't go to they didn't they didn't date in high school they weren't out they they didn't go to prom they're you know a dance they didn't have a like they didn't let themselves like openly show like their crush um and they've never had they never knew what like no one talked to them about sex no one talked to them about their bodies no one talked to them about how to like how do you have anal sex i remember when i was first my, my first male boyfriend i came out of the closet was i was 23 24 24 years old hmm. i literally had to google like I didn't even know how to have, like, how do I have sex? Like, how do I, you know, I didn't even know like what to do. Like my boyfriend was the one who told me what I needed to do to sort of like prepare and like imagine, you know? And so no wonder you, you know, you grow up as an adult and you have some discomfort around intimacy with another person mm -hmm. is very vulnerable. Um, you know, and if, and so if you, if there's a drug, especially crystal meth, I mean, meth is literally a drug that washes away the shame. And what's funny to talk about the, the term clean, it's very important to, for people to understand just because you're on drugs doesn't mean you're dirty. Yes. Just because um, like HIV, if you're on any dating right. app as a gay male, you're like, oh, are you clean? Like right. that refers to anybody that has suffers from HIV or any other STD is a dirty person and that is very that is not true right anytime anybody in the app has ever been like are you clean yeah i took yes. a shower today yeah <laughs> i would make them like rephrase it before yes. i would answer accurately and i honestly because i i work uh, through na uh, i've never really understood the clean to sober term i think honestly it's the fact that you can piss clean I think that's what it refers to, but I've never um, really understood or that your bloodstream is clean from drugs. But so it doesn't mean that you're a dirty individual by any means. So, but yes, I always interchange sober, clean. At the end of the day, I use the word sober a lot because that's more society, societal recognize, mm -hmm. it recognizes it a lot more. Mm -hmm. And then I say the word clean a lot because... I work the NA literature and that's what yeah. it tells me to do. <laughs> I get, no, I totally get it. I totally get it. And I totally understand. And I think that for people who are listening, who maybe aren't aware, you know, just to like when, when I hear people talk about themselves, like I'm, I'm just big on words and like, I'm curious, like, like to your psyche, like saying that over and over again, you know, or hearing that over and over again, just sort of implies like, oh, others who aren't mm -hmm. in this program maybe are dirty or, you know, something. So I'm just, I'm just very like mindful of words and language um, because I do think it's something that we take in. No, of course. And I think bringing the whole thing back to shame in, in yes. your book is the thing is in order to get rid of shame growing up gay, we need to make sure we're growing up in a comfortable environment. Yes. In an accepting environment, an environment that is willing to talk where we come out to our parents and our parents are able to have the birds and bees talk with us about gay sex yeah. because it's not happening in the schools. No. Um, so it needs to happen at home and it right. doesn't need to happen on Google.com. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> or it doesn't need to happen on Grindr with a, a 40 year old man when you're 16, 17 years yes. old. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in your book kind of talks about that. It's about raising LGBT kids. Yeah. So, I mean, if anybody is interested in like picking up your book, what can they expect to see inside the book? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. My book, it's, it's, it's about, well, it's called raising LGBTQ allies. And 
one of the things that I often talk to about, like even with parents or caregivers is that, you know, we live in a heteronormative society unconsciously. And so there's this sort of kind of not even like, it's not even conscious, but we just kind of raise kids or we like sort of until they come out, we sort of think that maybe they're, well, they're heterosexual because that's kind of the, the majority or the default. And so my hope with my book is to be proactive. You know, there's this sort of, maybe you're familiar with this like in treatment even, but from a mental health perspective, prevention is a much more effective intervention than treatment. And, and so if we could prevent something before we have to treat it. And so my book is I'm hoping to prevent a lot of the things that you experience, that I experience, a lot of my clients experience um, to prevent those. And so to have proactive conversations, you know, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I, I, I think that, you know, children, going back to what I said earlier, they're sponges, they absorb everything and they're not so great at interpretation. And so a lot of the things that even my clients, like, you know, when I, when I explore their childhood or their memories, you know, and I ask them like, well, how did you know that? Or how did you, you know, and it's sort of what they, what they interpreted. Um, and so if we can, as parents, caregivers, you know, the book really was born from my own experience of having conversations with my nieces and nephews, with my family and helping my family understand I've come from a big Italian family. And so um, I have like 20 cousins who are married. So that's double 40 cousins plus children. They all have kids. Most of them have kids. And so there are a lot of young people in my family. And so my hope really with my book was I, I sort of was wanting them to consider that there are right now in our family LGBTQ kids. And if we're not considering that as a possibility, then we're contributing to the experience that I had, mm -hmm. um, which is I didn't kind of like my client said, you know, there was no space for me to be gay when I was younger. Yeah, which makes us closeted. And then, yes, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of it's a domino effect into a domino effect. Um, same thing like we had no space for lgbtq in back in the day mm -hmm. when stonewall and i mean those were tiny spaces but now we mm -hmm. have huge platforms available to us so we need to make sure we develop the platforms for us as adults but what about the lgbt kids right um so we need to make sure that we open those doors that we've had um and experienced through make sure we open it up so they have their own platform and are able to be accepted to be open at a younger age so they don't have to fight so much internally with themselves. Yeah, cuz we 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 we, we grow up not only are we products of our family and in our family's family and kind of generation, but we're products of our environment, our neighborhood, our city, our country, and so there are layers to this and so um if we can sort of explore all of those and help create spaces where everyone can be themselves and feel seen. And, and a, you know, a lot of my clients that I work with, and this is one of the things too with my book, is to help parents and caregivers attune to their children, you know, to really allow them to become who they are and to, to facilitate a sort of space for them to to expand and not feel like they need to hide 
because then that's where you know the I, I you know the closet in my opinion is a hotbed for shame yes yeah i mean you shouldn't have to be in the closet the only reason we're in the closet is because we feel shameful of our sexuality yeah um i i kind of always i've always stated that i hope for a day that there's no coming out yes that it's you bring home the person that you're with and you say, mom, dad, this is my boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is. And then that's it. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why this whole coming out has became this major monumental thing. We should just be who we are and whether it's a man, woman doesn't really matter at this yeah. point. Um, so I hope for that. So, of course, I'll link the book in the bio, but like, where are they able to find it if they want to look for yeah, it? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Raising LGBTQ allies, it's it's available wherever books are sold. Um, independent bookstores, bookshop.org is an independent bookseller, um, or Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, um, wherever books are sold. Um, it just came out in Spanish a few months ago that I'm so excited about. Um, yeah, so this is, yeah, th this is the English version, Raising, raising LGBTQ allies. That's and then cute. this is the the Spanish um, version. Version. Um, I love the covers. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. This is from an artist. Um, that he's and it's like a really yeah. So <laughs> um, they they got a like an artist to create. He's a, he's like a well known artist, and so he drew this. And it's it's supporter. It's to represent like consciousness and like how mm -hmm. we develop as children. Um, but hmm. yeah, so I'm really excited. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. Hit that follow button to be notified about new episodes every week. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Instagram at The Sober Unicorn Podcast or on our website at thesoberunicornpodcast.com. There you will find our episodes as well as our very own sober-owned shop featuring products from small businesses that are sober-owned. And remember, everyone, don't be normal, be a unicorn, but better yet, be a sober unicorn. 